This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning to you all. It's so lovely to see you. That's great. Really great to see you. So happy to see you. I wish I could be there in person, but soon. The new Zendo looks beautiful. I can imagine it. it looks so fresh, ready to welcome new people, bright. Congratulations. I don't know what you all did during that five minute break, but I had to give a cat some half and half and talk to the dog, explain. He's pacing around behind me now because they've gotten used to me sitting still and Zazen, but they're still not used to me sitting still and talking at this object on the desk. They're still not used to it. So they look at me, he's looking at me now, but Hopefully it won't go on too much longer. Maybe another year they could tolerate. <laughs> so I'm happy to talk to you today. I want to, uh, it's an honor. Thank you so much, Mako, Reverend Mako Roshi, abiding teacher. Thank you for inviting me to visit you. It's good to see so many of you. And I, um, I'm really happy to talk to you. I'd I'm looking forward to talking to you about this koan. Partly, I was drawn to it, the way we're drawn to koans over and over, public cases, stories from the, from, our, from the great Zen dialogues of the past. Partly, I was drawn to it because it has a little bit to do with taking care of a place and building on that place. And something that Austin Zen Center and Houston Zen Center shares with San Antonio Zen Center and San Francisco Zen Center, other places, is that we have a place to practice and we have a place to take care of. And there are places around, I, I travel a fair amount to visit other people that do not have this place. So I've noticed as people have been coming back in person, we actually have started some in-person meetings with um, a doodle pole. So we keep the density manageable, but people have been coming in person and people are so enthusiastic. There's a feeling of joy being back in the place and taking care of it. So this con is one that circles around this issue of taking care of a place. So the con is number 18 in the Blue Cliff record. Goes like this. Emperor Sutsung asked national teacher Nanyang Nanyang Wei Jung, after you die, what will you need? The emperor said, please tell me master, oh, excuse me, the national teacher said, build a seamless monument for me. The emperor said, please tell me master, what that monument would look like. The national teacher was silent for a long time. Then he asked the emperor, do you understand? The emperor said, I don't understand. So in order to go into this story, we need to go into what seamlessness is. We also need to talk about seams, the place where adjoining takes place. We have to talk about what something is in order to talk about 
what something is not. So Derrida says, it is not possible to talk about anything without drawing out what it is not. Every expression of life is in relation to something else. So the Emperor Sutsung asked national teacher Nanyang, and Nanyang was very important to Dogen. He really liked this old Chinese master. The emperor said, after you die, what will you need? The national teacher said, build a seamless monument for me. The emperor said, please tell me master what that monument would look like. The national teacher was silent for a long time. Then he asked the emperor, do you understand? The emperor said, I don't understand. So the commentary to this koan, unusually in the Blue Cliff record, has a little history of China in the introduction. And it's important to know something about this history. And you can see, you'll see why it connects to our history, what's going on a little bit with us in our country. So the national teacher, Nanyang, as he's now known, was a student of the sixth ancestor of Hoika. So in the time of the sixth ancestor, uh, Buddhism was out of favor with the rulers. And when the young illiterate Hui Nung arrived at the temple, the sixth ancestor in, in China, the sixth ancestor after Bodhidharma is very important in our school because of how he practiced. And he was again, illiterate. He heard teachings as he was in the marketplace selling firewood to support himself and his mother. He heard somebody walking by reciting the Diamond Sutra and he thought, what do I have to know about that? So he asked the chanting monk how he could learn more. And the chanting monk said, go to where the fifth ancestor is. And so he went there and was sent to pound rice. I'm giving a very, very brief story of the sixth ancestor because it's a little bit relevant. So these, the fifth ancestor recognized his value but protected him by sending him to pound rice in obscurity in a side uh, building of the temple and then gave him a Dharma transmission in the dead of night, which we still, uh, which is still reflected in our ceremony to this day and then sent him off into hiding for 15 years because Buddhism was being suppressed. It was really risky to practice Buddhism. So he hid out for 15 years and then came back and started his own temple. So the teacher, the master in the story of the seamless monument has a little bit of a similar story. So uh, he eventually would go to study with the sixth ancestor, but he lived in Fujian district. And I, when you think about China, China wasn't the big block mass it is now. It was a little bit more, it had the same breadth across the continent but it was a little funny shape because it went around the kingdom of Tibet, for instance, and was quite low below uh, Mongolia and other places, but it was quite wide. So where we find this Nanyang of this story is sort of where North Carolina is in that part of the continent. So there he was, and he was born into a little tiny village. They say a, a village of three huts and he uh, did not speak. He was slow to speak. He hadn't spoken, he was toddling around. He didn't speak at all. 
He didn't ever cross the bridge in front of his house until he was 16 years old. So when he was 16, a Chan master came to the district as they would wandering through. And as soon as the boy saw him from afar, he ran out and over, to the, over the bridge to greet him. His father, mother, relatives and neighbors from far and wide came and discussed this in ama amazement. They said, how amazing it is that since infancy until his 16th year, we have never once seen this boy speak, nor have we ever seen him cross the bridge in front of the house. But the moment he saw the Chan monk, he acted like this. Perhaps this boy is different from ordinary people. The boy then asked the Chan master to ordain him. He said, I earnestly wish to take refuge in meditation and leave home. The Chan master declined. He said, you are just a child reared on a buffalo's back in a village of three families. How could you enter the gate of Chan? It is not something for which you are suited. The boy said, I suggest to the venerable that this teaching is of equanimity. There is no high or low. How can you speak in this way to hinder my good intention? I ask again to extend your compassion and admit me. The Chan master said, you shouldn't leave home like this to follow me. The boy said, then where should I go? The Chan master said, have you heard of Sao Chi? So Sao Chi is the mountain on which the sixth ancestor was practicing. And unlike a lot of teachers, he isn't named, he isn't known now by the name of his mountain. Like Nanyang, the young boy right now, eventually became known by the name of his mountain. But Sao Chi is where the sixth ancestor practiced and Sao Chi becomes So, and it's the um, first syllable of our school, So To. So the To is from Tozan, Dongshan, but the So is from the sixth ancestor. So that's, he's considered one of the sources of our school. So the Chan master in the story says, have you heard of Sao Chi? And the boy said, I do not even know what region Sao Chi is in. The Chan master said, on Mount Sao Chi, there is a good friend. He's called the sixth ancestor and his community is as large as 600 people. You go there. I am traveling to Mount Tiantai. You just go by yourself. So back to our image of the comparison of China to the United States, the young boy was setting out to walk from basically North Carolina to basically Louisiana that far. And meanwhile, the, the monk that he'd been attracted by was heading to the great Tiantai temples where Tiantai Buddhism was practiced. And eventually Tiantai Buddhism would go to Japan before Zen. And when Dogen was first practicing, he practiced on Mount Hiei in a Tendai temple. So it was very important even then where the great teacher Zhir Yi was establishing some of the practices that we still practice to this day. So our famous master set out to walk and I, I Googled the distance. I did Google maps to see what the difference is between where he was and where he was planning to walk. And the distance is 795 kilometers. And Google Maps says that walking would take 206 hours. I didn't bother to look up how long it would take to drive because that was not an option for him. 
206 hours. So if he walked 10 hours a day, it would take 21 days to walk that far. A poor young uh, seeker. So when he reached the sixth ancestor, the ancestor was just about to teach. The young boy bowed. The ancestor asked him, sixth ancestor asked him, where do you come from? The boy replied, I have just come near. The ancestor said, tell me truly where you are from. The boy said, I am from Chechong. The ancestor said, you have come a long way to get here. What did you come for? The boy said, an enlightened teacher is difficult to encounter and the true teaching is hard to hear. So the sixth ancestor accepted him and he practiced there for a long time and then moved to a hut on White Cliff Mountain in Hunan for 40 years. He did not come down from the mountain for 40 years, but still word of his practice reached the capital. So usually again, uh, koan commentaries don't say much about the politics or about what was happening around, but it would be assumed that people who heard the name of an emperor asking in the name of a Zen master question, they would know who that emperor was. So it would make a difference. And the vast territory of China at that time uh, was in major warfare. There was a big rebellion going on, the An Lushan Rebellion. And the emperor, the grandfather of the emperor in the story had had to flee the capital and he was way up in the north while his son had moved way down south to fight this war. So people hearing the name Emperor Su Tsung would know this information, just like if we were doing a modern day koan and we said, President Lincoln asked the Zen teacher. We would have a feeling about that or some knowledge. Civil War, or if it were President Trump asked the Zen master or President Biden asked the Zen master. We would have immediately a sense of the political surroundings. So when people hear that the emperor asks the master a question, they know where that emperor is coming from. So again, this emperor who's talking to our uh, Nanyang was the grandson of an emperor who had had to flee because of the rebellion. And then the fighting went on for a couple of decades and our emperor's father had been one who just waged tremendous war about this. And he had even sent to the far west, basically where San Francisco is. He sent to San Francisco for reinforcements from the caliphate. So he's, the caliphate of that time sent him 4,000 troops and those 4,000 troops marched across China to help him win the battle. And those troops um, are the first, basically among the very first Muslims who arrived in China. So in the eighth century, 4,000 Muslims arrived, intermarried, interconnected with the local people. So the Uyghurs and other people in China today came during this time. So, the rebellion was put down in 763 by this Tsutsung and his son, Taizong, two emperors, warrior emperors struggling for power. 
And when you read about it, which I did, um, when you read about this series of battles, alliances, betrayals, disguises, kidnapping, murder, it's like reading the Game of Thrones in China. It's serious human deception and struggle for power, murder, mayhem. And then everything calmed down under this new uh, regime, re the, basically the restoration of the original emperors and word of the, the, this monk living on this mountain got to the emperors. So these are the emperors who invited Nanyang to come to the capital and set up a teaching site. So part of what for me is interesting in this story is why did he go? Why did this, why did Nanyang leave his mountaintop and go help the emperor? Because there are plenty of stories about Zen masters choosing to ignore the emperor's request and stay on their mountaintop and work with their monks. But Nanyang went. So think about, I think about how, how that would feel. He didn't need to go. It wasn't out of fear that he went to be with the emperor. He went for some other reason. Why did he go? I think he may have sensed some benefit in this time of warfare and strife. He thought, I'll go to the seat of power and see what happens there. He didn't know the emperors. He just knew that they were, that the, the rebellion had been put down. Maybe it was time for him to go to the capital. He was, Nanyang was the first one to be called national teacher. In all these koan collections, you'll sometimes see national teacher so-and-so. So national teacher Nanyang is the first one who got that title from these emperors. They decided they have all this power. We respect him so much. He is the national teacher, sort of like our when we have national poets. He was the national teacher. So when the son of Sutsung succeeded to the throne, I'm going to give you some more data now. In 762, they put Nanyang in the abode of light temple, and he stayed there for 16 years. So he'd been on one temple for 40 years, another temple now for 16 years. And it says, expounding the Dharma according to the occasion, skillful means. He died in 776, over 100 years old. So he was the national teacher under two emperors of China, father and son. And under these two powerful image, uh, excuse me, emperors, China continued the Tang dynasty, an era of great cultural flourishing. Zen flourished throughout the country for another couple hundred years. So I, I bring this up because teaching Zen and teaching warriors and teaching people in a time of great unrest is also what we're facing. So another version of this koan has the emperor asking, for your hundredth birthday, what, what will you need? The teacher Nanyang stirred up waves where there was no wind and said, build a seamless monument for me. But the emperor was also an adept. Please tell me master what the monument would look like. The master was silent for a long time, then asked, 
do you understand? The emperor said, I don't understand. So this koan has captivated people for a long time and we can appreciate both the simplicity of this national, national teacher and the simplicity of the sixth ancestor. Reb Anderson often says, our lineage is of very simple people. He has harsher words. He says, our lineage is lineages of, of dummies, but that's kind of not true. But simple loving speech is part of our, uh, our heritage. But one thing I want to appreciate is the silence at the beginning of the story and the silence at the end. Our young future national teacher was silent for the first 16 years of his life. And what kind of silence would that be in a very small village, not speaking many years. And then at the end of his life, meeting with a warrior emperor people who showed up in glorious robes of silk and had the power to just make any decision they wanted. And he was silent. So was it the same kind of silence or was it a silence full of the meaning of life? What, how these two knew each other beyond the ultimate, beyond the union of ultimate and uh, and conventional realities, fullness of life in that silence. Was it Vimalakirti's silence? Was it the lion's roar of Queen Srimala in her silence? Silence has many meanings. So these two having this dialogue in the room, probably a fairly luxurious room, the emperor's room built for the teacher old friends, very dear to each other, exchanging maybe the last words they would ever speak. What can I do for you after your death? You can build a seamless monument for me. And the national teacher would know that a monument would be built for him, very traditional to build a stupa for a great teacher after they die, very traditional to build a monument on an important occasion like the 100th birthday but I, for me, the seamlessness, when we, when we contemplate it, has several meanings. And for Zen students, it definitely refers to the ultimate, the ultimate seamless reality that we live in. No, no gap at all between ultimate reality and conventional reality. But for me also, now that I've delved into the history that was going on around this koan, I think it also means um, a request from the emperor could mean build a monument, this from the uh, national teacher, build a peaceful monument for me, build something seamless and peaceful. Can you build me a monument that is completely peaceful? So could he do it? And they maintained the peace at the price of warfare for quite a long time. But in order to understand the seamlessness, I also want to appreciate seams. I had this image while we were doing Zazen a little bit earlier this morning of the kind of seam that is the way we refer to a, 
seam of gold or, a, well, gold doesn't come in seams. Certain precious things come in seams in the earth. And when you get into that seam, you can go really deep. So that's a kind of seam. But mostly when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the seams that come with sewing, since several of this of, of us on this screen have sewn our own rakasus and we really understand seams. We make them visible on our rakasus. And certain kind of clothing in, in Japan and other cultures really appreciate seams because fabric was precious in these times. Now it's often taken for granted because we don't admit anymore about uh, the cost of people weaving fabric for us. But back then, fabric was really appreciated. It was visible, the weaving of plant fibers into fabric. And indigo fabric was very hard to make, it took a lot of time and skill. So when you had an indigo garment that you would wear out in the fields and something would wear out, you'd put a patch on it, very obvious. The seams were made beautiful. And then patches on top of patches. And some of these things are so beautiful with all their seams that they hang in museums. And they're like the beautiful um, quilts that hang in museums where the seams are an obvious testament to the work behind the object and the care that goes into it. So there's nothing wrong with seams. And if Dogen were commenting on this koan, which probably he's done somewhere, he would push us beyond seamless and seam. And, and stupas, I want to say that I assisted at building a stupa at, for Cobencino at the site where he died in um, Switzerland. And it was a very elaborate process involving lots of jagged rock and lots of pounding of the earth to make it stable and putting it all together. And underneath this stupa are jagged rocks put together and also some secret things that you put in at various levels of the, suit, of, of the stupa for, um, esoteric reasons. But then when you look at the outside, it's totally smooth, 100% smooth, like, like cream. So seamlessness covers what is jagged also. Back to our emperor and our um, national teacher, also appreciating the emperor's statement. So a lifetime of study, a lifetime of warfare, and contemplating the reason for this warfare. So a father and a son and a grandson waged these wars and all studied Zen teachings. What must that have felt like? Sitting at the seat at the feet of this great Zen master. So a lifetime of his effort goes into his statement also when the emperor says, I don't understand. Nanyang says, do you understand? When he says, I don't understand, that's also a statement beyond understanding and not understanding. It's a statement of knowing what's at stake in understanding and not understanding. It's a statement of appreciating their lives together, the life of this great teacher. I don't understand the difference between birth and death. You're gonna be leaving us soon. I will be leaving us soon. They've both seen a lot of death. So the great matter of birth and death, the question of birth and death is contained in this, this dialogue. And do any of us really understand this great matter of birth and death? 
So I appreciate that emperor's incredible humility when he says, I don't understand. I appreciate um, the silence. I appreciate the seamlessness of this koan. And I appreciate the humility that's beyond that's behind a statement like, I don't understand. So thank you very much for this mysterious time together. I feel like we're together. <laughs> thank you for letting me share this koan with you seamlessly. Thank you very much. If you'd like to ask a question, make a comment, the floor is open. Nakon, is that? <laughs> uh, I read. Um, I read. I just read the um, this case a couple of different translations, and one of the translations was um, grave instead of seamless. Um, uh, now I'm forgetting <laughs> the seamless monument. Um, it was translated as grave, and I don't. And I don't know if you had any thoughts on kind of. I mean, I understand. Yeah, you were talking about the stupa, and that's how where we had would put them but okay i don't know just i thought about the difference between the translation i thought it was interesting yes studying different translations is always interesting did it say seamless grave is that what you're saying it just said build me a grave yes whose translation was that i'm gonna go find it again <laughs> okay <laughs> my first response is well we've got to see it and compare the characters and see what how it is they translate it because it is fascinating how people open up the characters. Till then, I will remain silent. <laughs> so I put it up, but it doesn't have the Chinese. I mean, it doesn't. Yeah, show the how where they got the characters. Okay. So I put it in the chat. Anything else, Mako? Thank you. Sorry, I don't have a raised hand function on, on my Zoom. Um, thank you so much, Galen. It's wonderful to see you. And thank you for bringing up this, this um, taking care of our temple. <laughs> We're taking care of everything that is uh, appears in our lives. Um, your, uh, this koan actually reminds me of just yesterday, we had uh, uh, Karen was in the center painting. And she was particularly that yesterday, she was focusing on painting the inner panel color while trying not to get onto the, uh, the frames of, door, of a door. So she was painting the, the, <laughs> the inner panels in loft light <laughs> and the outer, uh, the uh, exterior is, was in moon gaze. And as she was going through, we were noticing that um, we might need to go back over and do some moon gaze after the loft light was on there, right? So, but there was this this interesting question of, uh, as you brought up with the, you know, what is seamless and what is seamed and what is the value of both seamed and seamless? And it reminded me of the koan um, where I think it was Shui Feng is, uh, is asked the question, do you separate the rice from the grit or the grit from the rice? And, and he says, I throw them both out together. And um, I believe it was, um, it was Shui Feng, who do you, I can't remember who he was with, 
Um, Gen Gendo. Shuifeng and Ganto. Ganto. So I guess he, he says, I'll throw them both out together. And Ganto says, uh, you know, go see so on and so your <laughs> your affinity does not lie with me. <laughs> anyway, this this koan of, um, you know, when do you emphasize the um, when do you emphasize unity and when do you emphasize difference? Mm. And um, so I I'm wonder if you could speak to this in um, in terms of the seamless monument. What was the emphasis on? Hmm. Yes, I guess my question is, how do you, um, maybe on a practical level, as one navigates uh, life, uh, when to, when to f uh, emphasize the, the seams and when to emphasize the seamless? And how do you go beyond both? That's well, such a great mean? question. Yeah, great, great question. And a, li a living question. One, one way in, I want to say, is that making those subtle changes, shifts of, of colors between little areas of painting is, is, it's our Zen thing too, but it acknowledges the importance for humans, for us, of um, delighting the eye. We need to delight the eye, and the way the eye is delighted is with things that are slightly different and subtle uh, things in, in relation to each other. So the colors that make up a room are really important to us, us people. And we have in our little garage Zendo over there, um, the window treatment, and they're really old windows, you know, um, but the window treatment has like five different colors, all just slightly different from each other. So we recognize that we, we need to provide delight in our places. So seamlessness could be neglect. Just bring your mind to it. It makes no difference what you see when you get here. And there are people who practice that way. I think uh, Master Ma, didn't he, he refused to let people fix the chairs. He just tied a piece of firewood to the leg of the chair. So a, there is that way of doing Zen, but um, we take care of the places. And I, I forgot to mention that many of you know, but um, the Margaret Austin Center, which is almost midway between Austin and Houston, has now been transferred into Houston Zen Center's stewardship. So we're working up there all the time. And eventually, we, we want you all to come and use it also for retreats on 40 acres of savanna land and oak trees. So I'm up there painting and cleaning and doing all kinds of things to make a seamless feeling monument. But taking care of places is for me and for, for you too, Mako, I know is, um, is a choice to dance always in the realm of seam and seamless, seam and seamless, seam and seamless. Take care of the conventional, relax into the ultimate take care of the conventional, relax into the ultimate. That relationship never goes away. And part of the beauty, I think, of this koan is that Nanyang went to the capital. He went into the land of total seams, warfare, peace, emperor, um, peasant, 
to demonstrate the seamless, you know, and out of that, he asked the emperor to, you make something seamless for me now. So the, the resolution of that koan is, is our life. How's that for an answer? Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> do you have painting clothes? I do now. <laughs> <laughs> we don't wear our robes into the painting arena. Thank you. Uh, Anne? Maybe a little off topic, and maybe that maybe someone, anyone, could answer that knows. But I'm really curious how the introduction of the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad, what influence that had on Chan at that time, if any, um, or if it was considered a threat or just something that they didn't even think about. But I was just curious if anybody knows, because sounds like that was what may have been happening a little bit at that time. Absolutely. The, the caliphate that answered the plea from the emperor um, was the third prophet after Muhammad. So it's actually very close to the time that the prophet Muhammad was alive. So it must have been very powerful teaching. And under this, those emperors, Buddhism flourished, um, Islam was not repressed and the emperor was uh, considered himself a Confucian Taoist Buddhist. So during that time, the Tang Dynasty, one of the reasons it flourished was that it was protecting all of them. So that was the great Silk Road. And there was also um, a lot of communication with uh, Christians back and forth along that road. So, yeah. That's why we have the images of Buddhas that we have, which are kind of uh, Western styled because it went, the Silk Road brought things from Greece and all sorts of imagery was being shared. I don't know myself what principles of, of Islam were brought in, but principles of Christianity, no doubt, got brought in. More research. You can go back to school and, and get a doctorate in Muslim Chinese influences. <laughs> uh, Rich has a question. Hello, good morning. Thank you for that talk. I just wanted to ask you, so it sounds like talking about seams talks about like this kind of seam where it's a close. It's, it's about how do I drape this form, right? This, this body, like what do you do with this body? Uh, it sounds like he's saying, uh, like, and it's, I think it talks about, it sounds like it's talking about like the, the kind of form that's referred to in the, in the Heart Sutra, which is empty, according to the Heart Sutra. Is that, does that sound, is that right? I think that's completely right. Yeah. What is the, um, a, a monument traditionally, again, the national teacher and, and that emperor lived in a time when they just built monuments all the time for important things. They would build a monument for him after his death already. Everybody knew that. So their China, that capital was probably full of monuments for this and this and this. So they knew about monuments, but 
did they know about empty monuments? Did they know about seamless monuments? Nanyang did, because that's the school of Mahayana that he was, he was uh, raised in, the sixth ancestor school. Um, so yeah, that's what they're talking about, emptiness. Yeah, I guess my first response was, it sounds like the, the silence at the end is, is like, like you said, Vimala Kirti's silence of like, there's really no place that I'll be when I'm, I'm gone. So there's no form that you need to create around it, you know? And it'd be like, just throw me in the ground with a hole, you know, hole and cover me up with dirt. Cause there's no, that would be the earth of one, you know, like, as opposed to building some particular thing in a particular place would be sort of contrary to his teachings, it seems. That's a very interesting take. That's, yeah, that's good. That's, that enriches it. I, um, and maybe that's, maybe that is what he was thinking. For me, part of what makes this koan so appealing once you start learning more about the characters in it though, is that they must have really loved each other. So, and that a lot of our Zen koans and Zen stories are testaments to love of people studying together over long periods of time, going through all sorts of adventures together, traveling for each other, appearing, teaching each other, accepting this great warrior king as his student. Um, yeah, for me, the love is in there. Yeah, I guess um, when you say that, I think about like, I, I've been reading Suzuki Roshi's teachings and I'm, it's almost like he's with me and it's not like he's in any particular place, but he's with me in spirit and it doesn't really, he's not really in a particular, like, I know there's a, there's a monument for him in Tassajara, but to me, he's not really there and it's not really about that. So it's almost like, keep me in your heart or something. It's more about like you're saying. You know, I think you're right, Rich. And the locations of places uh, to concentrate our hearts are really important. So yeah, there's a monument at Tassajara, there's a monument at Green Gulch, at City Center, at his home temple. There's a place along the road at, at on the road into Tassajara where everybody knows some of his ashes were scattered and that's a, you know, a place. There's a tree that was really important to Suzuki Roshi. So when you go to all those places, it makes it more vital the feeling and the awareness. So th this, our relation to places is extremely interesting for humans. We need places, we need, we all, each of us are sitting in a place that surrounds and protects us. We're not exposed to the elements. And we've, most of us probably have a sacred spot even within our spot in our places that's even more concentrated that we're aware of. So you're absolutely right, Suzuki Roshi is, both everywhere and somewhere. One of the teachings about form and emptiness is emptiness only appears in form. It's not separate from form. So our veneration of Suzuki Roshi takes place in form and in monuments and in the buildings that we maintain. So the two aren't, can't be separated. Thank you. Thank you. I have a little story. There's no one else. I, I want to say a little story. I, um, my beloved Labrador, who's over there, he's, he's very perky, but he's probably 13. He's very perky. 
And before the pandemic began, I thought, well, I've got to make some decisions about where he will be buried. And I, because um, we can't do it here in Houston. And maybe now that Margaret Austin Center has been transferred to us, there will be a nice big area on the 40 acres. But before that happened, I did research and it turns out outside of Austin, there's a place where you have natural burials for dogs. And so I called them up before the pandemic and they said, oh yes, come out and bring him. Maybe he'll pick his own spot. There's an area. And oh, I was so moved by it. And then the pandemic hit. So we haven't been out there to look at these nine acres. But when I was talking to the woman, she said, and we can reserve a spot right next to him for you. Oh. <laughs> it was kind of a powerful moment for me. <laughs> Luckily the pandemic hit, so I haven't had to reserve my, my spot where my shrouded body will be interred in the, in, the, in the earth. So the great matter of birth and death is really close to us. If there's no one else, I'd like to say something that just occurred to me because you've been talking about the seams and I always focus on the seamless aspect of this, but um, when we, we posted your title, I was thinking, how do we build this seamless monument now and not wait, you know, for somebody to die? And there are lots of stories of building these kinds of monuments, starting on them before someone dies, because often they're elaborate and they take a lot of time. But, you know, that's the literal monument. But I just um, thought this practice we have of taking a whole piece of cloth, cutting it into pieces, sewing it back into a whole, a whole garment, raksu or okesa. And then when we, before we wear it, we call it the field far beyond form and emptiness. Seems to me like we are constructing the monument right now. Every time we sit down and every time we put this thing on and for, and for those of us who have done this kind of practice, you know, it's like, this is like crazy. We're, <laughs> we're cutting this thing into strips, you know, and then we're putting it back together. Like what's going on here? And then you kind of understand as you do it, but but a different sort of thing emerged just now for me. So thank you. Thank you. Yes, exactly. And also it occurs to me you're building the seamless monument every time you step on the first step of Austin Zen Center. Pat. Oh, that comment by Choro just reminded me of. Uh, the talk I heard you give a month ago about edges and how we practice with edges and uh, so that we can, oh, uh, well, I guess learn to deal with them, you know, because the world's so full of edges. And so when the seamless thing was kind of, well, you said something that kind of tied it together with, with edges and and now uh, when Shoro brings up that we cut our Wakasu uh, cloth into pieces and then sew back together again, so we're making edges uh, to work with. And uh, I don't know, I just felt like, and oh, also I'm so excited to hear about the Margaret Austin Center. <laughs> that's, that's just wonderful to hear that we'll have a retreat center that we can use maybe sometimes. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Pat. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, we've talked about edges and boundlessness during the session. Thank you.
and yeah, I, I'll send you and Marco and I will write something about the Margaret Austin Center or I'm, the working title is Auspicious Cloud West, but we'll see what name arrives. Um, the, we're just sort of waiting until the final title documents arrive from the title company. I, I feel just a little tiny bit superstitious. I don't want to make grand announcements until that piece of paper is actually in our hands. And so even though we're working for it up there, still that piece of paper has to arrive from Aggie Land Title Company. <laughs> if anybody knows anybody at Aggie Land, please call and light a fire. <laughs> I mean, encourage them gently. <laughs> okay. Well, it was wonderful to see you. So glad. Thank you again, Abbott Galen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Galen Roshi. I look forward to seeing you in person and at the Margaret Austin Center. <laughs> you know, wonderful. Our seamless place. Bye, everybody.